2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and noted further that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. Over our six episodes of Climate Change, America and the World, the LSE Phil and U.S. Center has brought together expert analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change, from the impact on the forced movement of people to the politicization of climate change in American politics. Our approach has been diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we have brought to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series has not only been about America, but about America and the world. In the sixth and final episode of our series, we map out some of the political progress and deadlocks that have shaped America's relationship with climate change. With America's dominant position on the global stage, it might very well be necessary to mobilize for impactful, mitigative policies domestically in order to inspire transformative change globally. This is a point that was made in the very first episode of the series when we examined the impact of the United States' withdrawal from, and then later on re-entry into, the Paris Accords. Although the world is not necessarily dependent on American action or inaction on climate change to locate their own solutions, it is difficult to argue against the transformative role that America can play in shaping climate change discourse and policy. To discuss some of the ongoing debates on potential pathways in addressing climate change, we are joined by two guests. Beth Gardner is an environmental journalist and the author of the 2019 book, Choked. The Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future. In writing this book, Beth traveled the world and examined the effects of poor air quality in different countries in an attempt to map out what a cleaner future for our planet can look like. We are also joined by Dr. Rebecca Bromley Trujillo, an associate professor at Christopher Newport University. A part of Dr. Bromley Trujillo's work examines how environmental and climate policy take shape in America at both the federal and state level. By bringing together Beth Gardner's journalism and Dr. Bromley Trujillo's academic scholarship, this final episode will preview what the future of climate change politics in America might look like. In tackling climate change, a whole host of policy recommendations have been put forward by activists, scholars, and policymakers. As will become clear throughout the episode, by bringing these different stakeholders together, we can work towards a much more comprehensive plan to tackle the causes and repercussions of climate change. There are many arguments, theoretical and otherwise, on what approach to take to tackle climate change, and we don't have time here to go into all of them in detail. But two approaches that you might have heard about, especially in the American context, are degrowth and 
the Green New Deal. And these aren't necessarily disconnected from one another, but they do form their own particular policy recommendations. The degrowth framework argues that emissions reductions are made possible through reductions in the consumption and production of goods. In essence, moving towards slower rates or even zero economic growth and that in order to have a truly comprehensive response to climate change, nations in the industrialized world need to move towards this model. One of the most talked about proposals in tackling climate change is also the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is not just one thing, however. Instead, it describes a set of policies that call for a comprehensive change to our economic and social systems. The Green New Deal began to enter policy discourse in the early 2000s, but it's within the last eight or so years that calls for a Green New Deal have firmly made their way into Congress, thanks to a large part to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and into presidential debates, thanks to somebody like Senator Bernie Sanders. Debates will always form an important part of formulating our response to climate change. In 2022, President Biden's administration engaged with this debate by signing into law the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA. Dr. Rebecca Bromley Trujillo unpacks what the IRA is and how it fits in within the broader debate on America's approach to climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act is the largest ever financial package to address climate change passed uh, by the federal government in the United States. It's not as holistic as a Green New Deal would be. And so to kind of get at the differences here, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is really a financial package that offers many incentives for a transition to clean energy, whereas a Green New Deal is focused on many things. It's acknowledging that there needs to be a rapid transition to uh, clean energy, but it also includes things that would temper the costs associated with doing that quickly. And so a Green New Deal would include like social programs, job training, uh, those sorts of things. And so the Inflation Reduction Act does incentivize that transition, and it does have some elements of the addressing uh, the shift to uh, clean energy, such as job training programs for those working in the fossil fuel industry, but it doesn't go near as far. And so I would suggest that certainly uh, we should still be fighting for a Green New Deal. Uh, and, and I'd also add that, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act offers what we call carrots rather than sticks. And so though those financial incentives are large, uh, it's about $369 billion over the next 10 years, uh, it doesn't include you know, requirements for reductions in greenhouse gases and penalties associated with that. And so you know, there might be some pieces missing that are still needed to get into that rapid transition. So it seems that although the IRA does do quite a lot, it's more of an incentive provider than a firm regulatory hand that some policies like the Clean Air Act of the 1970s served. Could you further unpack how the IRA does incentivize greener policies? The IRA is offering a set of financial tools through which the states, local and tribal governments uh, can use to pursue their clean energy transitions. Uh, what I would say is that states that are already invested in a clean energy transition will take advantage of this the most. And so state and local governments, they have a really important role in the energy sector through the planning and permitting process. 
which would allow them to use the funds uh, provided by the Inflation Reduction Act. And more specifically, the IRA includes $27 billion allocated to something called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. And these funds can be used for things like streamlining the permitting process uh, for renewable energy projects, and especially establishing infrastructure for electric vehicles. Really what it does is it makes renewables more affordable, scalable, and it incentivizes states to pursue it because it's going to be a lower cost option for them. Now, some states may be more resistant to using the funds. We've certainly seen Republican or conservative states just not take funds from the federal government for things that they don't think they need. But I think that those states can certainly package it as an economic uh, argument rather than a climate argument and still use those funds. It totally changes the environment, changes the market. Uh, and so there are so many incentives there that states can take advantage of, but they may not all. The other thing to emphasize about the Inflation Reduction Act is it has a pretty significant emphasis on environmental justice. And so a lot of the funds are tied to disadvantaged communities uh, for things like infrastructure development uh, and so this is a big deal for those communities, and there can be significant co-benefits related to air pollution and public health issues. And so we'll see states using these funds, and particularly for their disadvantaged communities. The possibility of packaging the IRA as an economic investment rather than as a tool to combat climate change may be important. It often seems that in politics, alongside substance, what matters is how you articulate an idea and how you sell an idea. And so if climate change exists within a broader polarized political climate, policies that address the issue while simultaneously being shown to benefit people economically will likely be more popular than those that are simply seen as bringing about sacrifice along some ideological lines. A Green New Deal emphasizes the importance of climate justice, and one of the consistent features throughout this podcast series has been an emphasis on imagining what climate justice can look like. Whether or not the IRA goes far enough in bringing about climate justice is debatable, but as Dr. Bromley Trujillo outlined earlier, the IRA, by tying some of its funding to disadvantaged communities, does attempt to make the link between addressing climate change to structural problems. This can create co-benefits, which essentially means that by addressing one issue, you can simultaneously address other issues. And when it comes to climate change, one of the most obvious co-benefits that emerges through the implementation of environmentally friendly practices is cleaner air, which is a topic we will get into later on. To ground our conversation on the benefits and shortcomings of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's important to consider the wider American political context in which this law operates. Beth Gardner provides her take on how the IRA was perhaps inevitably going to be limited in what it could achieve because of Washington politics. According to Beth, what we essentially have with the IRA is a carrot but no stick approach, whereby incentives exist to pursue certain policies, but these incentives operate outside of punitive measures. Obviously, now we know that, um, you know, we have a Republican House and that obviously takes off the table, you know, until the next election, any significant climate law because of the you know, really hard right majority now on the Supreme Court, some of the decisions we've seen and, you know, some of the further opinions that are likely to come out of this court 
are really also tying the hands of the administration, the Biden administration and future administrations on regulation, which obviously, you know, sort of exists independent of like a current political makeup on Capitol Hill. The regulatory agencies, whether it's the EPA, Department of Transportation, whatever, are becoming more and more hamstrung in their ability to act. Um, And I think that that's, you know, very clearly was why the Biden administration moved towards the the setup of the IRA, which is as the, you know, the terminology goes or whatever, it's all about carrots, not sticks, right? The sticks are about, you know, uh, regulations that can force or laws that could force different uh, industrial sectors to reduce their emissions. Those tools are not really available. You know, even even before the the twenty two uh, midterm elections with a, with the Democratic Congress, we obviously know we had that fifty fifty Senate where the deciding vote was cast by Joe Manchin, whose state is a obviously West Virginia, a coal state. He personally profits a lot from the coal industry. He agreed to support the IRA but only on the condition that quite a few loopholes were carved out to continue the fossil fuel industry, continue fossil fuel growth and exploration in the U.S. And that is the big limiting factor of the IRA. It's not really necessarily the fault of the Biden administration. Their hands have been tied by the realities of the Supreme Court and the political dynamics on Capitol Hill. But what it has meant is that we're in the situation where they've thrown tons of money at renewable power, which is great. You know, we need that ramping up solar, batteries, electric vehicles, all that stuff, low and no carbon um, technologies. But at the same time, you know, not long ago, we saw Biden approve new fossil fuel drilling in Alaska, this willow exploration project, an oil, a new oil project. So what we actually know, and even the, you know, very cautious, very conservative IPCC has told us this, is that we have to stop extracting new fossil fuels. We have to dramatically reduce the amount of fossil fuel extraction in the years to come if we want to have any serious chance of limiting climate change to something that we're going to be able to to cope and to live with. And because of the political realities in Washington that have left us with this all carrots and no sticks approach, well, you can increase renewable power all you want, but if you're also increasing fossil fuels, that fossil fuel combustion, then your emissions are going to continue to increase. Beth Gardner mentioned a recently approved oil drilling project in Alaska by President Biden known as Willow. In episode four, we mentioned the implications of this project and how it has faced backlash by indigenous peoples in Alaska who argue that drilling for new oil in this region will pose grave threats to their ways of living. This one decision shows how even if the IRA is monumental in tackling climate change, this does not mean that other damaging policies are not being pursued simultaneously by the very administration that has passed this important piece of legislation. It is possible to take steps forward and to take steps back. Our national politics are very fraught when it comes to this issue. Those divisions really shaped the IRA itself in a way that you know may limit its impact and its ability to be as effective as it as it might have been it's good to see obviously that states are moving forward regardless but i i don't think that's ideal 
As Dr. Bromley Trujillo and Beth Gardner have noted, the IRA is a monumental piece of legislation. It situates climate change much more centrally within America's political discourse than has ever been the case, and it provides incentives that can bring about systemic change. At the same time, it's also worth pointing out that the IRA fell short of not just what climate activists and advocates of a Green New Deal called for, but it even fell short of President Biden's initial plans, and this was actually in large part because of Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia. Although he eventually came around to supporting President Biden's bill, the version he supported was repeatedly revised and ended up releasing far fewer funds than what was initially proposed. Again, President Biden's plans to pass the IRA was frustrated not just from Republicans' lack of support, but because of a Democratic senator from a coal-producing state. The IRA passed in 2022, but a few months back, around the spring of 2023, Senator Manchin threatened to support the repeal of the IRA due to an apparent insufficient level of funding into fossil fuels. This shows that even when it seems that progress might be made in transitioning towards a greener economy, we are never too far away from going backwards as well. This one episode of Discontent highlights the power that individual states play in the US. In the case of Senator Manchin, he would argue that he was affirming his commitment to West Virginia. But how does the responsibility for taking climate action fall between the federal and individual state governments? Dr. Bromley Trujillo provides an outline on how the federal system in America works in relation to climate change politics. I think a lot of people get confused by this with the U.S. system. Uh, and so I will first say that states have considerable latitude in a federal system in the U.S. to act independently and also coordinate with the federal government on environmental policy. And we have seen states act on many different environmental issues over the years, and they also have um, jurisdiction over energy, transportation, and building sectors that make them particularly useful to addressing climate change in the U.S. Our federal system, what it means is, like, ideally, we'd be tackling an issue as large at the federal level because it's a certainly a more comprehensive approach, um, but states that are active in environmental policy can do a lot. And they fill a policy vacuum when the federal government isn't acting. When a power vacuum has been created, what have some states done in their own way to tackle climate change? There are several states that have been leading for, you know, the past 20 years or so. And I think the standouts would really be like California, Washington, New York, Hawaii. Uh, these are all states that have adopted pretty aggressive policies over the last 20 years and continue to do so. Like California is an early leader on many different aspects of climate policy, you know, adopting aggressive renewable portfolio standards. Um, California especially has been active in the transportation sector. And so recently, in fact, the state uh, adopted a first in the nation requirement that uh, they will stop the sale of new gasoline powered cars by 2035. So that's a pretty significant move that will have far-reaching impact because of how influential California is uh, when it comes to transportation. They affect the entire market of the U.S. Like New York in recent years uh, has really been aggressive at thinking about um, like climate justice or environmental justice. 
and making sure that disadvantaged communities are uh, protected and that they're actually reaping benefits of climate policy. And so some of the things we've seen in New York have been focused on, okay, when we do reduce emissions, are we doing that equitably across the state? Hawaii is unique in that it was the first state to adopt a 100% green energy mandate for the electric sector um, by 2050. And so that's, uh, they were kind of the start of a wave. And there's about 12 states that have since adopted something like that. Uh, and so those are really what I see as the leaders. Um, Washington in 2019, they passed a major uh, climate package. Certainly the, they have a clean energy mandate that's big, but I would say more interesting is their change when it comes to the electric utility sector. And so for traditionally, uh, if we're talking about electric utilities, they are incentivized to engage in capital projects that incentivize fossil fuels um, or development and usage. But Washington kind of shifted the model so that instead of following a capital projects model to get a return on investment for shareholders. It's more of a, what they call a performance-based model where carbon reduction can actually be one of the standards in that performance-based model. And they also, the utilities must also consider uh, what they call the social cost of carbon. Uh, and so that's a pretty different um, shift when it comes to the environment of electric utilities. The value of such wide-ranging bills from the federal government like the IRA lies in their implementation. How has the IRA affected the dynamic between different levels of government in America? We have seen states pushing forward, whether it's um, you know California, New York, pushing much more aggressively than the national government has been towards zero emissions, net zero kinds of goals. Um, you know, obviously there's a huge divide there, right? The the blue, the red states are not doing that. The blue states are doing that, some of them. I don't think that's necessarily the ideal situation. I think that has happened because there has been such an, an absence of action on the national level. Obviously, that changed um, you know, this past year with the uh IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which really amounts to, you know, the biggest by far. Um, climate law that the United States has ever passed. If you're doing it on a state level, then a significant chunk of the country is not participating. Well, you're automatically losing out on any emissions reductions that you might have achieved in those places. As both Beth Gardner and Dr. Brahma Trujillo noted, there are distinct advantages that come from acting at the national level. For one, the United States as a whole can mobilize a far greater number of funds than any one state, and as the IRA has shown, substantive climate policy requires funding. Although the IRA has been a game changer, there is the potential risk that greater regional cooperation might just segment the United States further, not necessarily at the state level, but at the regional level. And this does not necessarily negate the effects of polarization when it comes to the discrepancies and how urgently one feels climate change needs to be addressed. Instead, the area of polarization simply shifts from a state to a region. What role does political polarization play in inhibiting climate change policy? And how has the red state-blue state divide manifested in this area of politics? 
This is one of the most consistent findings in political science research that liberal states with democratic leadership are considerably more likely to adopt climate change policy and not only to adopt it, but to also continue updating it and be making it more stringent over time. And so in my work and many others, we find that like the moment Democrats take control or they have what we call a trifecta, meaning they have the governorship uh, and both chambers of a state legislature, then we see a pretty quick shift towards adopting comprehensive climate change policy. Whereas in Republican-led states, even uh, one uh, of the three of the governorship or one of the chambers of the legislature can act as a veto point. So if Republicans control the governorship or even if they control one chamber of a state legislature, then they are very effective at stopping or blocking any sort of climate policy. And so when we think about political polarization, you know, this is the shifting of the parties further and further apart, uh, both on issues and also how we see each other uh, in our respective parties. That's been super meaningful to climate policy. When we think about polarization and the environment, we have seen over the last 20 years just a huge division on the several questions around climate change. At first, the division was over whether climate change even existed. Uh, and then it moved to, okay, maybe climate change exists, uh, but the Republican Party believes that it's not human caused, whereas the Democratic Party thinks it is. Uh, and then some acknowledgement that maybe humans are causing it, uh, but the shift then is it's too costly to address. And that's what the Republican Party is kind of moved the goalpost uh, over time on that issue. And so at this point, most Republicans are saying, okay, maybe there is climate change, but it's too costly to our economy to address. Whereas the Democratic Party is saying the opposite, that it's too costly not to address uh, and they are actively pursuing innovative policy. I mean, it's obviously a, a very dysfunctional and very difficult political situation in, in the US today. Um, when it comes to climate and environmental issues and really anything around sort of regulatory power and regulation. I think one of the biggest things we can learn is that, you know, these problems are not impossible, right? It was not actually rocket science to reduce air pollution by 80 some percent and, you know, improve, uh, reduce the emissions coming out of cars by 99 percent over, you know, decades. Um, the The senators who who drafted that bill really sat down and sort of engaged in a very serious way with the problem. Um, they saw a problem. They agreed on the problem. You kind of couldn't deny it at that point. I mean, air pollution was visible. You hear stories about people like changing their shirt in the middle of the day because the collar would be black with soot. And they sat down in a serious way to try to fix it. They created some very, very innovative um and clever sort of legal provisions within the Clean Air Act that would make it effective. President Nixon, obviously a Republican, you know, was no great kind of environmentalist, but he he was a very, very astute politician. He could see that the public wanted action. They wanted something to be done and they wanted their politicians to fix a problem that everybody could see that was harming everyone's health. So Nixon signed on to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, which is, you know, far from a perfect agency, but has been pretty good over the years. It's suffering a lot now. It was really gutted staff and resource wise. 
in the Trump years and they're struggling to come back from that. But it's been pretty effective at enforcing the law because that is a huge part of it as well. You you can write all the very pretty laws that you want onto paper, but if you don't have an effective, you know, reasonably well-resourced and empowered agency of some sort to enforce the laws, then they're kind of meaningless. So, you know, when those two things were put together, I think we we saw Washington actually do something that made a difference in, you know, literally the the analysis of the of the Clean Air Act from today's perspective tells us that it has saved, lengthened and saved millions of American lives in the in the years since 1970. And not only that, but it has been so cost effective that it has saved dozens of times more money than what it cost. One estimate was it saved 44 times what it cost. Um, You know, so you can do these things. We can achieve these things. Right. It's not impossible. The same is true of climate change, too. Now, on occasion, we have seen some Republican governors particularly in liberal states uh, that have pursued climate policy. And looking back, certainly most notable is Governor Schwarzenegger in California. That said, he was he's not a traditional Republican. um, And even now he speaks actively about the issue. There's just tons of evidence that parties act very differently in states. Uh, And in my own state of Virginia, you can see this really clearly Uh, When the Democratic Party uh, took control of the governorship in both chambers of the state legislature, we saw the adoption of something called the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which uh, Virginia joined a regional cap and trade program, and they established a 100% clean energy mandate by 2050 for its utilities. And as soon as uh, now Governor Yunkin, who's a Republican, took control, he immediately started saying we need to leave the regional greenhouse uh, gas initiative, uh, that cap and trade program, and we need to kind of back up and maybe not pursue this aggressive clean energy transition. And so just the moment we see these shifts in power, we see a change in policy. The other significant factor, I think, when you're talking about state versus federal action is, number one, what in a concrete way is it actually going to achieve And number two, the United States has a very important role on the world stage in terms of climate diplomacy and getting other countries to move forward. So how are you ever going to persuade, you know, China or India or other countries that we want to see move forward on some kind of lower carbon trajectory to actually do anything if, you know, the biggest polluter in history, us, still can't get our act together to agree on something? If the United States is unable to build broader consensus in tackling climate change domestically, the idea that it can mobilize divergent opinions at the international level becomes a much more daunting and perhaps even unrealistic task. Dr. Bromley Trujillo argues that when Republicans do act on climate change, it's within the context of being in a more liberal state. And as we noted earlier, one of the opponents to President Biden's IRA was a Democrat from a state in which the coal industry holds great power. What these examples show us then is that although there is an obvious red state, blue state divide in tackling climate change, much of that division is contingent upon what voters want and what politicians believe they owe their constituents. This could provide an opportunity to be constructive if Climate policies could be articulated in ways that underline the societal and economic benefits 
of those policies. Now, it may be impossible to get everyone to agree to any one plan, and certainly environmentalists themselves argue at great lengths over the correct course of action. But if more people can get on the same page that structural change needs to happen, then step towards that direction could perhaps be taken. In the short term, however, at least for the next two years in Washington, D.C., the Democrats will control the White House and the Senate, while the Republicans will control the House of Representatives. What will this divided government mean for states in tackling climate change? Will states have to take up the mantle? States have been taking the mantle for so long, they're going to continue. And with the Inflation Reduction Act, it makes it easier for them to do so. And I would also say that most people were focused on the U.S. Congress with the midterm elections, but there were a number of state-level elections that uh, will help some states pursue climate policy. For instance, uh, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Minnesota, they all moved from divided government to unified democratic control. And the expectation in those states is absolutely that they will pursue a more considerable climate policy. And these are uh, democratic trifectas. uh, And so that's where the sweet spot for climate policy. Prior to the 2022 elections, there were 14 democratic trifectas. Now there are 17. That may not sound like a big increase, but it is uh, substantial in a way. And I, I think we'll see those states tackle it. One of the reasons why it is important to talk about the political divides that exist in America with regards to climate change is to underline the need for collective action. When we think about solutions to global environmental issues, one that is oft repeated is the call to reduce one's carbon footprint, to take public transport more often, to bike or to walk. Although these are undeniably good things to do if one can do them, It's hard to not feel like these calls for individual action act as a way to shift blame and responsibility away from corporations and onto individuals and societies. To what extent can the fight against climate change be achieved by individual choices? To me, that is such a frustration that I have with every um, environmental issue. It seems to me like so much of the media coverage and so much of the public conversation and the public understanding tends to focus on sort of individual decision making. And, you know, it often leads to, I think, a sense of kind of people feeling guilty, people feeling powerless, you know, what's my personal carbon footprint or whatever. This is a really big area of conversation kind of within the environmental community, right? What is the role of kind of individual action? What is the the power of, of personal choice, you know, changing? Um, to to change conditions versus what what is a bigger picture? What is about not individual and personal responsibility, but political and corporate responsibility? And to me, that latter, the political, the sort of systems change is and systems responsibility is so much bigger. And I don't want to denigrate the significance of, of personal action. You know, if you're concerned about climate and you go vegan or you decide to fly less or whatever, you know, that's great. And certainly it is also true that those kinds of actions can have larger repercussions. They can bring other people into a movement. They can gradually help to shift, you know, political realities on the ground. But I do think that quite often we tend to overfocus on those personal and individual decisions and we're losing sight of the bigger picture. 
right? These huge fossil fuel corporations are making money hand over fist. Their profits are through the roof this year. To me, that is such a bigger part of why our emissions are going up and up and up every year. You know, on some level as an individual, you you live within a system. If it's cold and you need to turn the heat on and the only heat available to you is, you know, gas heat or oil heat, you know, that has a carbon footprint. We often hear the term carbon footprint used to determine how much CO2 you as an individual approximately emit on a daily, monthly, or yearly basis. But what if I told you that it was in fact the oil and gas company BP, or British Petroleum, that initially mobilized the marketing campaign in 2004, which made this term so popular? Even when it comes to well-meaning people trying to fight climate change, the language that we use is often guided by actors that do much in the way of negatively affecting our planet. This of course doesn't mean that we shouldn't use this term, but it's useful to know why our solutions often go to individual choices. From this concept of an individual carbon footprint, we can also shift to think about how much CO2 a country emits, but even this is problematic because oftentimes such measurements don't consider the offshoring of CO2 emissions, which is an important reason why countries in the global north tend to have lower carbon emissions than some countries in the global south. In fact, some reports have shown that while wealthy countries like Germany and Japan have reduced their domestic emissions, they were indirectly responsible for increasing emissions in China due to their imports and consumption habits. This idea of measuring, therefore, has huge implications when we begin to consider how it affects the way we see and police one another. To reiterate, the point here isn't that countries and individuals should not reduce their emissions through more environmentally friendly practices, but instead that if that's where a bulk of the conversation starts and stops, then greater systemic change will be unlikely. One way, however, that mitigation can be brought about is through a focus on the co-benefits that can emerge through climate adaptive policies. I mean, in a lot of cases, where you see direct impacts of climate change, it does shift public opinion a bit, which could also shift that link between public opinion and elite decision-making. I've seen some, particularly adaptation and resiliency plans in more conservative states, and they just don't use the words climate change. Uh, so if they're going to adopt anything, they will focus on you know, the economy or a renewable energy perspective without using the words climate change. And so I really think if we're going to see more conservative or Republican states uh, doing anything, it's going to be just avoiding the topic, but doing something anyway. The role of co-benefits in combating climate change can be significant. Even if the Democrats lose the White House in 2024, it's not obvious, according to some commentators, that the IRA would be repealed as even Republican states will likely experience some economic benefits brought about by the IRA. In 2019, Beth Gardner wrote a book titled Choked, The Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future. For this book, Beth traveled around the world to understand the damaging effects that air pollution has on people's lives and the different ways in which governments are attempting to combat this problem. In the book, Beth talks about the origins of the Clean Air Act in the United States. The Clean Air Act of the 1970s was transformative in how the federal government viewed its responsibility in tackling climate-related issues. 
It should also be noted that during this time, the Environmental Protection Agency was established. And so this era reflected a time where it was deemed necessary for the government to step in and take bold decisions. What can we learn from some of the impactful efforts of this era? And do you think our current polarized politics will prevent Congress from making progress on this front today? People really want these individual actions, but it's so much more about political action. So maybe the individual action is, you know, get involved in a, in a political campaign, right? Or, or advocate for an issue. Because what we see on air pollution, and it's true, I think, of almost every other environmental issue too, but where, where we have actually made change and because of this incredibly powerful law that we passed in 1970, the Clean Air Act, is that American air quality, air pollution has declined somewhere upwards of 85% um, since 1970 when that law was passed. Our cars literally are 99% cleaner, in not in terms of carbon emissions, but in terms of the pollutants that we breathe in and that impact our health. That did not happen because of you know one person's decision to, to drive or ride their bike. That happened because the United States government and you know state governments are part of it too. The Clean Air Act created this kind of partnership, but the the U.S. government you know forced car companies to do that. Right? It forced power plants and factories and all kinds of industrial facilities to use cleaner fuels and to use cleaner processes and you know all these sort of boring, unsexy changes. Right? Installing you know scrubbing technology in their smokestacks or whatever. Those are the things that actually deliver change and that impact, you know, the, the air that we breathe. And as an individual, if you want to talk about personal choice, you have no choice about the air you breathe, right? You, you breathe what's around you. And so these, these decisions that are, that are impacting kind of what's available to us as individ, individuals and what kind of choices we can make, the, the, to me, the, the most impactful decisions are made at a, at a political level, at a governmental level. You know, we tend to talk about climate politics in terms of sacrifice. And, you know, that is part of the story. We need to, to change the way we do things. We need to shift our energy systems, um, our transportation systems. But, um, you know, the gain is is huge. And it's not just avoiding this catastrophic, you know, danger of of climate change itself. But it's also, you know, the the greater health that we would all enjoy if we were not burning fossil fuels all over the place all the time. Co-benefits emerge from tackling climate change that improves our lives. How can we achieve long-term mitigative success by leaning into the benefits of such policies? If we see the green economy take off, then it makes it a stronger selling point to put in uh, structures to advance that even more rapidly, is what I would say. And so I do think the Inflation Reduction Act helps the cause uh, as far as eventually having a more robust uh, federal climate policy, but it's going to take some time. And I think we'll have to see the benefits and we'll also have to see uh, the Democratic Party take ownership of it and sell it, which is really interesting in American politics. You don't see climate change as a top issue typically. Uh, and Occasionally you do. And so I think if the Democratic Party kind of leaned into it and the success of the Inflation Reduction Act, then we could see maybe a Green New Deal down the line. Um, yeah, I think that the, the administration has managed to, to find ways around, right? The Inflation Reduction Act was really impactful. 
um, and it will hopefully continue to be impactful as it, as it rolls out. This amount of money are just unprecedented um, that are that are unleashed by that bill. You know, and funnily enough, we're actually seeing some of the biggest um, rollouts come in some of the red states. You know, Texas, Oklahoma, the the Midwest states. Some of these places um, that we think of as like very conservative red states are actually the leaders in um, you know wind and solar power because they have the the wind and the sun there. Um, and there's money in it. So, you know, it's a complicated picture. You obviously, given the the sort of dire urgency of the situation we're in when it comes to climate change, that we've left ourselves in this very kind of desperate last minute place, you know, you would certainly want to see uh, the ability for the U.S. to act in, a, in a, the most effective way possible. It's very frustrating and disappointing that, that there are all these political constraints that make that impossible. But you know, we have seen leaders who want to take action find ways. So it's a constant challenge. There's constant pushback from those who would thwart climate action. You know, one big area of activist pressure in recent years has been on corporations, right? On banking, um, stop the financing of fossil fuel projects. Now you're seeing Republican governors and Republican attorneys general across the country try to stop that by, you know, legally prohibiting um, companies from taking climate or environmental issues into account, right? So it's a battleground. Everything is a battleground um, in American politics today. We know that. You know, it's a it's a difficult picture. Even with its contradictions of passing the IRA and simultaneously approving new oil drilling in Alaska, the Biden administration has done a considerable amount more than previous governments in the United States in centering climate change in the American political discourse. Of course, it has to be noted that a lot of this was done in large part due to years of activism and work by environmentalists and other members of the United States Congress. Throughout this series, two things that have been abundantly clear to me is that one, the damages of climate change are not a distant and abstract idea, but a present day reality. And two, possibilities for truly meaningful adaptation and mitigation are equally within reach. The choices that we make, collectively, may define the type of planet we live in. That was actually made very clear and very vivid in the IPCC report that came out quite recently. We know the IPCC, they're actually very conservative and very cautious in their, in their wording. But even the, the very cautious IPCC is telling us um, and has told us in this very powerful report that, you know, we are already living with the consequences. We have already um, experienced 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming from pre-industrial times. We're very quickly headed for 1.5, probably um, you know within a decade. Well, we're already seeing very, very serious consequences play out, and we know that we're on a trajectory towards you know something much scarier. You know, we're we're really not ready for this. But if you sit down and make a serious effort to address the problem. It, it is fixable. And that is really true with climate today, because unlike, you know, even 10 years ago, we actually have the technologies to do it. Climate change is a political problem now. It's not a technological problem anymore. You know, solar power is something like 90, 95 percent cheaper than it was um, even 10 years ago to install. Wind power is there. Battery power, uh, battery technology is, you know, improving so rapidly. We have electric vehicles, right? It's doable. We have all the tools. So I think if you look back to 1970, you see the political decision making that 
you know, took place then, you know, to me, that's a, that's a story of hope. And I think, you know, mindless hope is and optimism is, is not helpful, a sort of hope that em- empowers us to understand that we can fix these things. It's not impossible. Air pollution was not an impossible problem. Climate change is not an impossible problem. You know, to me, that's that's probably the biggest takeaway. Beneath the theater of some governments denying climate change and others claiming to be doing something about it while they fortress their borders from its effects, there is one overarching question facing us. In the rough and rocky future that has already begun, what kind of people are we going to be? Naomi Klein began her 2019 book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, with this question. Her question carries the weight of the challenges posed by climate change. We began this episode and the entire series by citing the urgent calls that were made in the 2023 report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The research that undergirded that report spoke to the immediacy of climate change as a phenomenon happening now and not in the distant future. But of course, we don't even need to reference long reports or scholarship to confirm this urgency. We can feel it ourselves. Since 1979, a tool from the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine called the Climate Reanalyzer has been used to measure the global air temperature at two meters above the surface as a way to keep track of global average temperatures. The Climate Reanalyzer found July 3rd, 2023 to be the hottest global day ever recorded with an average global temperature of 17 degrees Celsius. Although this may not seem that high, it's worth pointing out that this average includes the entire planet, which means parts of the world that aren't experiencing summer. July 3rd, 2023 was the hottest day ever recorded for our planet. Well, that is until the hottest day ever recorded became July 4th, 2023 at 17.2 degrees Celsius, which itself was matched on July 5th, 2023. At the time of recording this episode, wildfires are surging across Greece, forcing tens of thousands to leave their homes, and wildfires are also killing people in Algeria as temperatures across North Africa continue to soar. This is a very hot summer, and while I just noted records are being broken for the hottest days recorded, it's not that different than what happened last year when the United Kingdom, for example, recorded for the first time ever temperatures at 40 degrees Celsius. Year on year, it feels like we are breaking records that are best left unbroken. It almost feels inevitable at this point. This is the weight of climate change. As I mentioned earlier, the question asked by Naomi Klein carried the burdens posed by climate change, but it also pointed to possibility and to agency. Throughout our series, we have underlined the opportunities to address the climate crisis in America and around the world. One possibility frequently referenced is the Green New Deal, which we discussed during this episode. The Green New Deal utilizes the language and the impetus behind a set of transformative economic and social policies that formed the 1930s New Deal of President Franklin Roosevelt. The context within which the New Deal was fashioned was one of immense instability. There was the economic collapse in 1929, which became known as the Great Depression, and within a few years, World War II would begin. These were monumental times in American society, and so transformative change 
was needed. When we look at the climactic events of recent years, not just in America, but around the world, as we have explored throughout the series, it becomes difficult to argue that a transformative politics is not needed now. It's also important to note that contradictions are costly. While on the one hand, the Inflation Reduction Act has been transformative in setting the policy agenda to tackle climate change, the Biden administration has approved more oil and gas drilling permits on public lands per month than the Trump administration did during their first three years. Although a new rule announced by the Biden administration will make it more expensive for oil and gas companies to drill on public lands, President Biden's promise in 2020 of no more new oil leases now appears to be a broken one. This podcast series is called Climate Change, America and the World because it is at once a recognition of America's unique role in being a major cause of climate change as the largest historical emitter of CO2 since 1850, while also being the most equipped from a technological and leadership position to mitigate the effects of climate change. Mitigation cannot happen, however, without a recognition of the disproportionate effects of climate change on the developing world. Episodes 2 and 3 of our series examined these disproportionate effects by way of refugee creation and human insecurity, which leads to conflict and great suffering. Episodes 4 and 5 also explored disproportionality through our examination of climate change as a racialized and class-based issue. The point, however, with all these episodes was that even though it's a certain group of people that are most affected by climate change, no one country and no one group can be entirely insulated from climate change. Whatever the future of climate change politics might be, collective and coordinated action will likely have to play a prominent role. Whether we want to act collectively or not, well, that choice is ours. And so when Naomi Klein asks, what kind of people are we going to be? The answer, hopefully, will be a people that are transformative in their approach and global in their implementation. What policies any country pursues will always be up for debate, but the challenges posed by climate change are here and now. This is our climate, America's and the world's, and this series has attempted to reinforce this interconnectedness because until that is done, is difficult to imagine a future of climate change politics based on justice. This episode was produced by the LSE Failing U.S. Center by Moed Malik, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. The music from this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the sixth and final episode of this climate change series please feel free to rate and review this episode on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. <laughs>